1: I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. When you think about a dinosaur, what springs to mind? Probably something with giant teeth, but is it gray and scaly like a lizard? What about the sound it makes? Does it have a roar like a supersized lion? Earlier this month, I moderated a virtual talk with paleontologist Julia Clark, who is speaking as part of a series presented by the Yale Peabody Museum. She's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences, as well as a professor at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. In her research, Clark takes on some of these questions that might seem impossible to answer, like what color were dinosaurs or what might a T-Rex sound like? Clark describes her work as uncovering the secret lives of dinosaurs because scientists like her are finding some pretty amazing and surprising things about these extinct dinos we all learned about as kids. And to do that, they're not just looking at fossilized bones of extinct dinosaurs, they're actually looking for clues by studying the living dinosaurs we have on Earth today. I'm talking about birds, and before we hear from Julia Clark, I do want to pause on this for a moment, because I think the idea that we have living dinosaurs is still surprising for many people. Personally, I still have trouble wrapping my head around it, the fact that we actually live in a world with dinosaurs today. Modern birds, so everything from chickens to the giant ostrich to a tiny hummingbird, they are all dinosaurs. And I'm not just saying that they're related to dinosaurs or similar to dinosaurs. They are literally dinosaurs. That's because birds are the direct descendants of one of the branches of theropod dinosaurs. Those are the big carnivorous dinosaurs you're probably familiar with, like Tyrannosaurus rex, Allosaurus, or the beloved if somewhat fictionalized Velociraptors of Jurassic Park. So in the same way that we can say we humans are one type of mammal, birds are one group of dinosaurs, and the only ones that have survived to live with us on Earth today. Modern understandings of the relationship between birds and extinct dinosaurs has totally revolutionized the way scientists like Julia Clark understand extinct dinosaurs. But many of the rest of us are still a bit stuck in the Stone Age when it comes to our picture of dinosaurs. The dinosaurs in our popular culture, places like the Jurassic Park movie series, still really reflect the 19th century view of dinosaurs as big, lumbering reptiles, the terrible lizards that gave them the name dinosaur. So paleontologist Julia Clark started by giving a presentation about the dinosaurs of our imaginations and how they compare with the real creatures of paleontology that she's dedicated her life to studying.
0: So today I'm going to talk about the secret lives of dinosaurs and what does that mean? So dinosaurs have been having their not-so-secret lives in our imagination for um, more, well, more than 100 years. We were bringing to life, imagining our interactions with them and what they looked like, how, how they might be in our kind of contemporary world, um, their proud election for food, their coloration, their vocalization, and we've, you know, dinosaurs of the imagination can be whatever you want them to be, right? But what I'm interested in is how do we use science to reveal the secret lives of dinosaurs, that is, the real dinosaurs, the extinct dinosaurs that once lived, and um, bring them to life in ways that is informed by uh, new scientific discoveries. So my preference is, I think dinosaurs of the imagination are awesome, but even more exciting are how we use science to reveal kind of more data on the, extint, the lives of these extinct creatures. So how do we figure out things about the secret lives of dinosaurs? Well, in most cases, we start with the fossils, and we've been studying little bumps on bones, features and structures that are readily fossilizable in dinosaurs for over 150 years. And we use those to estimate their relationships with living animals. And this is going to become really important, because while I can't dissect these extinct dinosaurs, I can dissect living dinosaurs today. And this kind of interaction with living um, relatives of dinosaurs, living dinosaurs as we'll see, um, is important to informing these secret lives of extinct dinosaurs. So one of the big things that we wonder about dinosaurs is what did they look like? Well, we've had a lot of breakthroughs in this area, but we started from dinosaurs and their cousins that we can interact with today. Now, if we look at what we know of the relationships of living animals and with these extinct animals that we study primarily the bones of in in deep time if we look at where extinct dinosaurs are located in fact what we have is living dinosaurs birds and their closest living cousins crocodilians so if we look at these living dinosaurs and closest closest living cousins of dinosaurs well we might say these are very different looking animals. So what does the fossil record tell us about what dinosaurs looked like? Well, this is a whole lecture in itself, but of course breakthroughs that were made in a beginning in the 1990s, so actually the year that I started at Yale. Um, these discoveries from fossil bearing uh, units in more primarily Northeastern China have revealed a, a whole new array of dinosaurs and they preserve evidence of tissue structures, soft tissue structures that are rarely preserved in the fossil record. So in these deposits, which are the ancient lake deposits um, from the uh, primarily the early Cretaceous, these you break open like the pages of a book. If you were opening the pages of a book and inside you're going to find the remains of these dinosaurs. And they've really revolutionized our understanding of what dinosaurs looked like. So we have a dinosaur with uh, filaments or little tiny fuzzy structures that you can see on the tail and the back of this dinosaur, the first so-called feathered dinosaur discovered. And then we've discovered many more of these creatures. So these are an array of dinosaurs with filaments and bristles from all different parts of the dinosaur tree. These start to give us a better picture of what extinct dinosaurs might have looked like. If we look at kind of plotting what we have in terms of evidence of dinosaur body coverings, what we see when we get to these close relatives of things we call birds, these things also have branched feather structures that are very similar to birds today. So we've even made strides in recent years in figuring out the colors of extinct dinosaurs using science, not just our imagination in which they can be purple and yellow and whatever. But we can bring science to that that, uh, study. And we found two forms, for example, of iridescence in extinct dinosaurs. So this is cool. But some people are still bummed out that you have this image of brontosaurus in your brain and now these new fossils are coming along to challenge that and in fact the recent jurassic park movies had so little confidence in science science informed dinosaurs being cool that they decided to explain away um, the lack of these structures in their reconstructed dinosaurs. But I think these new dinosaurs are beautiful. I think these guys could be amazingly scary, especially if we looked at another aspect of their um, physiology, which is related to signaling and communication. What we see is that in the science of dinosaur studies is that all of these different colors that are arising once we have branched feathers they are going to be used, as these feather structures are in living birds, in communication. So what we see is evidence in these feather-covered dinosaurs that are closely related to birds, an increased role for visual communication in colorful structures. Well that's a quiet kind of communication, even if the colors are loud. But what we want to get to is, um, it does inform aspects of feather evolution that take us beyond just our wonderment at dinosaurs, but to the science of dinosaurs. One of the things I think is most exciting in dinosaur studies is that the filament structures, the little um, single filaments that we see in many different dinosaur species preceding the origin of flight, we see these feathers deployed in communication and probably deployed in communication before they're deployed in a form of flight that we would recognize as present in living birds today. So that's all pretty cool. But what I've been kind of alluding at is that we know things about these, these colors and feather structures, and we know certain things about what their roles might be in extinct dinosaurs. But what about this kind of more compelling question that if you were interacting with uh, an extinct dinosaur, what would it sound like? What would auditory communication or vocal communication in an extinct dinosaur be like? And this has been a big focus of my work in recent years, and I'm excited to share some of that with you today. But first, we need to look at the dinosaurs of our imagination. And I want you to look at this this very important kind of, uh, what do we want to say? this is this uh, cultural artifact that we have here. Paleontologist Julia Clark pulled up a clip from the 2015 Jurassic
1: World where we see two children racing away from the edge of a forest as the fictional Indominus Rex looms.
0: Now, if we were live, I would ask you, what does this dinosaur sound like? So we can see several things here. This extinct dinosaur is chasing these children, presumably going to eat them. Wide open mouth and mobile tongue of this uh, imaginary dinosaur. That sound in the sounds of these early dinosaur movies, in particular, was based <laughs> on sound like <laughs> There's no evidence this lion is about to eat some small children. And that's an important part of this is like, what what context do we imagine extinct dinosaurs making sound? But this is a sound that became a model, as if we were scared of lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And we put their voices into extinct dinosaurs. If we look at the much closer relatives of dinosaurs, living crocodilians, let's listen to some sounds from them. Similarity with a kind of growl-like sound in in a crocodilian, but one of the striking things about sound making in most uh, reptiles, uh, non-bird reptiles, is that they uh, there's a high frequency of sounds made with the mouth closed, and in fact, all crocodilian sounds, and they're pretty noisy, including this next sound, are all made with the mouth closed. So. I think if if you heard a sound like this from a dinosaur in the movies, you might be pretty freaked out. But you might be even more challenged by the notion that that sound was made with the mouth completely closed. And let's talk a little bit about that because that behavior of closed mouth vocalization is also seen in living dinosaurs today. And this is some trippy stuff that I think a lot of our bird watchers may not be fully aware of, um, is that a lot of birds, not the majority of birds and not nearly most of the songbirds, um, use closed mouth vocalization. And it's kind of weird to think what's going on here. Put simply, what's going on here in the majority of these birds is that they've blown up their esophagus. So that's not, in most birds, a specialized air sac, but in fact, the esophagus, which is distendable and amuscular. So the mouth is closed, the esophagus is inflated, becoming a part of the vocal tract that's modifying sound that is being produced. And these are pretty trippy sounds. So let's listen to one here of um, an ostrich. And it's fairly faint, so you might need to listen carefully, but it's the lowest frequency sound that you're going to hear it's that very low frequency whomping noise and admittedly that is not the best recording but if you imagine a dove cooing you can picture that sound making that is a closed mouth sound what we did was look at the prevalence in in outgroup reptiles of dinosaurs and living dinosaurs and we looked at would dinosaurs, the earliest part of dinosaurs to be making these kinds of sounds, would they, would they be likely to have been closed or open mouth sounds? It's about 50-50. But every origin of closed mouth vocalization was associated with an increase in body size relative to, to other taxa. So while there's a 50-50 probability and the pre, it's present uniformly in living crocodilians, In dinosaurs, we expect this behavior to at least have been present and maybe more prevalent in large-bodied dinosaurs, like that imaginary dinosaur in the movie clip. So if you were to imagine a dinosaur landscape, a dinosaur soundscape, some of these dinosaurs would likely have been using closed-mouth vocal behavior. So not all dinosaurs, and as in living birds, they don't use closed mouth vocal behavior for all the sounds they make, but uh, most commonly in sounds produced in territorial signaling or in some aspect of mate attraction. So some context dinosaurs might have been using these sounds, and in others not so much.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Where We Live producer Carmen Baskoff, and We're listening to a recent presentation and conversation I moderated with vertebrate paleontologist Julia Clark from UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences. The discussion was part of a series hosted by the Yale Peabody Museum. Clark has been explaining how the real extinct dinosaurs she studies wouldn't have necessarily looked or sounded like the dinosaurs of our imagination that we think of from popular culture. One of the most prominent players in the public's imagination of what extinct dinosaurs would have been like is the Jurassic Park series, but Julia says the fictional scientists in the movies have gotten a few things wrong. Julia played this clip from Jurassic Park 3.
0: I give you the resonating chamber of a velociraptor. Listen to this.
1: It's just a little
0: bit late. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that cultural artifact that we just watched. Um, One is talking about sound and sound makers. So he talked about a resonating chamber of a velociraptor. To be clear, we have not found one of those, but as I pointed out, the resonating chamber, if you will, in crocodilians is the mouth. And in uh, living dinosaurs, it's the esophagus and mouth. So there isn't a particular structure in most, di- living, most of these guys that is a resonating chamber. Also, a resonating chamber doesn't produce sound, it just modifies sound. So if we want to look at dinosaur sound makers, we're looking at something different. And it's not a resonating chamber so much as it is um, the sound maker. So let's look at sound makers and what we know about the closest cousins of dinosaurs. Here we have a crocodilian and they vocalize using the larynx and you will see the muscles that attach to the vocal folds in the tongue, the back of the tongue area in a living crocodilian. This is also in its basic relationships where your vocal organ is located and we vocalize as humans with a modified larynx. Living birds uniquely evolve a new vocal sound maker called the syrinx. It is not located in the mouth, but if you were to dissect a bird, you would find this structure right behind the heart where the vocal tract meets the two branches of the airway that go to the lungs. And this transition, we know living dinosaurs have this totally new vocal organ while uh, crocodilians and All other tetrapods have a larynx. And the question is, when did this thing evolve? When did it evolve in the history of dinosaurs? Did these dinosaurs use a larynx or a syrinx? We don't know. Well, I started looking into this a little bit and I was like, what could fossilize to give us a sense of when there might be these changes in the vocal apparatus? And what I noticed is in the fossils of relatives of living bird species, they commonly had preserved these rings that support the airway. Whereas in all of the the earlier dinosaurs that I had looked at, those guys, earlier branches in Dinosauria, none of them had these tracheal rings preserved. Well, I got lucky in 2013 and discovered the earliest known fossil evidence of a vocal organ In dinosaurs. So this was in a fossil that was from Antarctica and this fossil is related to species of birds that are still alive today. There was one tiny little bit in there that I couldn't make sense of, so I zoomed in on that in the CT data and I saw this ghost-like structure and I was like, oh my gosh, that looks like a syrinx. So right deep, kind of right where the syrinx is located in living birds, there were these, uh, one part of the organ was three-dimensionally preserved with several isolated rings around it. And this is the first one from the age of dinosaurs. Well, what did that tell us? Unfortunately, most of the work on living dinosaur communication has been done in songbirds. This is a really specialized syrinx that we see up in songbirds, but it in fact is not very representative of structures we see in other birds like chickens. And chickens and their relatives are are earlier branches in the living dinosaur bird tree. And we found that these fossil syrinx that we looked at was actually not, you know, I, I like to say not the model T of vocal organs, but sort of like the Chevy Impala of vocal organs. And in songbirds, you know, you have maybe the Mercedes Benz. It's very, I don't, know if that's the right set of metaphors for this, but gives you a sense that this isn't the first form of the syrinx, but it is already modified by 67 million years ago. So what do we know about dinosaur sound making? Well, we're still very much in progress on this research, which I find exciting. The earliest known fossil evidence of a bird vocal organ is still in a species that is extinct, but is related to species we have around today. Maybe the structure that we've looked for for now a subsequent seven years in the the extinct um, dinosaurian record, maybe it was very weakly ossified, giving it a low fossilization potential, or it actually had a fairly late origin. So we'll have to think about that moving forward. So when do dinosaurs make sound? Um, What we do know is that in both of our our closest cousins to dinosaurs and living dinosaurs today, the babies communicate with the adults and the adults with the juveniles. So that is very likely present within extinct dinosaurs. Similarly, we know that both of these groups use vocalization in um, territorial defense, in mate attraction, and even combined with visual display. So both living crocodilians do, uh, some of them do a water dance display, which is actually a a visual display associated with sound making. And that's also seen in living dinosaurs or birds. So that's kind of a fun thing to bring to uh, dinosaurs. And how we think about extinct dinosaurs and how we think about them. So I like to say maybe Jurassic Park would be a very different movie. If you wanted to have a lot of complex sounds being produced by dinosaurs, it's not going to be right before they eat children. It's going to be in other contexts where they're communicating with other members of their own species. So, I hope I've taken dinosaurs of your, you know, of your imagination or, or kind of challenged the way perhaps some of you were thinking about dinosaurs from this oversized lizard perspective to a kind of very different look. And what I challenge you is to bring that notion of thinking of our living dinosaurs to thinking about extinct dinosaurs. And I think that makes them only richer for having that, that um, information from kind of scientific discoveries that we've made over the past at least 50 years.
1: This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Bascoff. You've been hearing paleontologist Julia Clark, who's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Clark was speaking at a virtual event hosted by the Yale Peabody Museum, which I moderated earlier this month. Coming up, Julia Clark and I talk about women in paleontology and why representations of who looks like a paleontologist matter. That's all coming up after the break. This is where we live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. We're listening to a presentation and conversation I moderated earlier this month with paleontologist Julia Clark. She's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. The event was hosted by the Yale Peabody Museum and it was one in a series of talks they'd organized with women scientists with connections to Yale in honor of the 50 years since women were first admitted to Yale College. Clark has been telling us about how her research as a paleontologist has helped uncover the secret lives of dinosaurs. But she said she also wanted to spend a bit of time talking, too, about what she called the secret lives of women scientists. Now, Clark's a prominent researcher who's made groundbreaking discoveries that have changed the way we understand dinosaurs. And yet, Even today, Clark says the image that we have in our minds of a paleontologist,
0: it's not often someone who
1: looks like her.
0: I want to challenge us to think about who we think is discovering these dinosaur fossils or making these discoveries. And I was heavily influenced by iconography around male explorers. In fact, I would say there was a brief period where I thought what I really wanted to be when I grew up was a middle-aged man. But what we have is that throughout this period, there were women scientists, there were women who were leading discovery and, and expeditions of discovery. But I like this quote about many of them. Women explorers have been compared to shadows flitting across a landscape. Few have left records, their footprints have vanished in the sands and their memoirs have often been published anonymously. And this is true across disciplines, this erasure of history of female scientists. So there's a long history of female explorers, female uh, expeditionary um, work, and a lot of it gets kind of lost in terms of our history. i like to show this. This was from a New York Times article um, that was a double page spread on expeditions to Mongolia in which like two out of 12 scientists were women. And this was the only picture with a caption indicating a woman was present out of about 13 to 14 photographs and I'm reflected in my postdoctoral advisor's glasses. And this wasn't my advisor's choice. This was the choice of, of the magazine of the New York Times. Um, and they represented a fossil that I discovered uh, with an expert on that group of animals, but in fact, without you know talking about that, that was discovered by a woman. You would not know from the photos really that women were even present on this expedition, except uh, this photo. And I think the sense of erasure um, is something that is still going on today. Um, I like to mention this study, which was done in 2016, um, is science built on the shoulders of women. And it was the roles attributed to women in different uh, work. And what we see is the same kind of sense of footprints being erased, these shadows across the landscape where women are are differentially put in these or or mentioned as contributors in subsidiary roles. Even when women are lead authors, that is the last author, the, the person who led the study, the study is differentially attributed to men who are on the same study. And I think most excitingly with respect to thinking about dinosaur vocalization, what we have is um, new work. This is a great little article in The Conversation just came out um, that is about how women studying living dinosaur song have changed our understanding of it. For example, most people thought that song was only produced by male birds. And they've found that it's actually widespread and likely ancestral to songbirds. But it was women in the field that really were involved in that discovery. Diverse voices can shape diverse science. This leads to sort of richer discoveries about um, dinosaurs, about other extinct and living animals. And so we're trying to investigate in my lab all sorts of different structures with these diverse set of awesome minds, that of young minds that are players in this in this field so often to the landscape put women in that landscape because they're there even when you don't see them um, as represented as much thank you so much julia
1: um, i'd love julia to pick up sort of where you left off um, on this topic Of representation and diversity in paleontology. Um, And I know you made, you know, many references throughout your talk to movies like Jurassic Park, which, you know, I think show dinosaurs that in many ways are this relic of kind of our 19th century understanding of dinosaurs and not really what our modern understanding of dinosaurs is today. And and I guess, you know, along that vein, I would just love to have you talk a bit more about that idea of what are our perceptions of who is a paleontologist, um, and you know what are we losing if our, our idea of a paleontologist is just a white man wearing khakis in the
0: field? Yeah, it. I mean, we are losing so much. That's my firmly biased opinion. Um, you know, I would say that I I did a survey recently of um, books written about dinosaurs for kind of an an interested lay public, like dinosaurs, you know, uh, the new dinosaurs. Um, There's a series of these books that have come out in recent years, and um, they're without exception written by men and ontologists featured in the books, either in photographs or in the text itself. And I think that's really detrimental because I can imagine like when I was reading these books and I was thinking only middle-aged white men did this kind of stuff. Um, it didn't keep me from wanting to do it myself, but, you know, I think it would be a lot easier to, for people, for young kids to picture themselves in those roles if there wasn't such an emphasis in, the, in our inner representations of this 19th century um, idea of what a scientist is. That is ex- excludes a lot of fantastic scientists. And um, you know to be more specific, I would say even in like the Jurassic Park movies, there are women paleontologists that are featured. Sometimes they're experts in reproduction. Um, I don't find that particularly challenging. Um, maybe they're the, the scientist that's wearing the lab coat as opposed to the scientist training the velociraptors. I don't think that's really helping us out terribly. Um, Why can't women be in there training the velociraptors too, you know? Um, So I think we could do a better job and that requires a cultural shift. And um, to actively seek not to erase, you know, or rather to amplify the voices of of the non-dominant culture in science and in paleontology specifically. Yeah.
1: And I guess I'd love to ask because I, you know, I think one of the great things about paleontology is, you know, dinosaurs are these charismatic things that are so appealing to um, people of all ages, but I think particularly to many young people. Um, And so I guess, you know, when we think about having greater diversity in fields like paleontology, um, you know, it seems like in some ways that the problem is not you know, at the beginning with the start of interest, because you, you see uh, kids from all backgrounds and all genders who are really excited about dinosaurs. But, um, you know, what what can we do to, you know, keep that enthusiasm alive and, um, you know, to, to, to bring that forward so that, you know, hopefully, you know, some of those young people do end up pursuing the field themselves. Um, and, you know, I come from, I come from a media background. So, I mean, it sounds like uh, you know, part of this is, is on, on my field as well, right, in terms of how we are covering science.
0: So, you know, I, so I, I appreciate that, Carmen, because I do think, um, one, there is a significant role for the media and both in fictional media representations of science. I mean, we see in our current culture the way science and scientists um, can be treated. And so, you know, one, pie-in-the-sky view is to really, you know, maybe it's not pie-in-the-sky, but to bring, uh, to see this deep uh, affection for science and a desire to understand kind of who's doing it and whose voices might not be heard um, as often. And so I think that is a key thing. Um, but I do think this is a bigger problem. This is something that is is really happening in the post undergraduate. So it's it's happening at the graduate level. It's happening at the postdoctoral level. It's happening at the faculty level. Um, that is, there's a lot of cultural shifts that need to happen to make those cultures of belonging for all sorts of scientists. Um, at the same time, you know, getting folks the pipeline into undergraduate institutions that actually offer the kind of science I talked about, which is not at all universities, that is another, um, you know, focal point. And there's a lot of people talking about this right now, which is excellent, but the cultural change to, to create those cultures of belonging is challenging and requires sort of sustained effort as, as many others have have talked about. Yeah.
1: I'd love to read a um, viewer question uh, along this topic. Um, Wendy says, thank you. And she's a parent of a 10 year old girl who's fascinated by dinosaurs, paleontology and archaeology. And she's wondering what she can do to continue encouraging her to pursue this curiosity and interest.
0: I think at, at, at 10, you know, you just like you read all the books, you, you You find, you know, I remember as a kid, I just even even fictional books. I mean, admittedly, there weren't a lot of women in those books. Um, But I guess you just pursue science. And I didn't know I wanted to be an explorer. I didn't really know what that entailed. I didn't know if I wanted to do paleontology or archaeology until I went to undergraduate and I took both classes and I kind of made some decisions along the way. But I did have opportunities that, you know, for high school students to go experience field cultures. Now I want to acknowledge That there are a whole group of students out there in the US in which camping and outdoor activity in that kind of field setting is maybe not desirable. There isn't a culture of that kind of participation. That isn't why they want to pursue science. So I think we also need to represent science as something people can do in a laboratory if they want. Um, people can be paleontologists primarily in the lab. You do not have to be a field paleontologist. Um, so we, you know, that's that's another thing. I don't know, keep for young girls, I think support their curiosity, support, build anything that builds resilience, because unfortunately, I think it's still very important to a a career in a a field where you're not the dominant culture. But the thing I will say is that at the undergraduate level, um, the programs that feed into paleontology are about 50-50, male and female, with uh, students of color very much underrepresented overall. Um, but it's supporting that culture of belonging at levels beyond the undergraduate that is, is also important, is, is key.
1: You've been hearing paleontologist Julia Clark. She's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences. After the break, we'll hear some more audience questions about Clark's research and about dinosaur behavior. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff, stay with us. where we live. I'm producer Carmen Baskov. We've been listening today to a conversation I moderated earlier this month with paleontologist Julia Clark. She's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences. The virtual conversation was hosted by the Yale Peabody Museum. Towards the end of the discussion, I took questions for Clark from members of the audience. One audience member named Judith wanted to know, did Dinosaurs sing.
0: <laughs> oh man, don't get me started on what song is. But um, I would have to say no, in the sense of if you consider what what people call songbirds, and what our very not inclusive definitions of song have been, then most dinosaurs would not have sung. because most ornithologists don't consider like what an ostrich does or what a chicken does song. Those are considered non-song vocalizations. Um, So there's this wide, I I like to parallel it with talking about diversity in science. Um, There's a diversity in vocal behavior in living birds um, and only one small portion of that has been called song. And that's related to notions of western musicality and then that was attributed primarily to male birds so it's it's actually that paper i showed from the conversation that that recognized that many female birds do also sing um so but in non-avian dinosaurs vocalization yes song probably not
1: you know I, i was sort of struck as you were giving your presentation um you know it feels like in many ways a lot of what you're doing is almost sort of the work of like a forensic detective, you're sort of, you know, taking these things that are not easily sort of directly studied, but you're finding all of these clues, um, both in the fossil record, but in kind of the, the world of modern living animals and kind of putting that all together. Um, and I'm wondering if we can talk about, you know, particularly when we think about things like behaviors, you know, how do we start making guesses or, or figuring out what the behavior of dinosaurs looks like, given that that's something we, cannot observe directly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like your analogy of of forensics. I say that, you know, it's about the questions you ask and then you have to figure out creative ways to ask them. And there's a lot of creativity in science, just saying, but like in, not in making stuff up, but in identifying what are those forensic clues that you might use to get at things like that, how you study behavior is you look first, I think, to understanding the behaviors of living animals and what structures might indicate aspects of that behavior. And that's something that you can bring to the fossil record to uh, try to get at whether that behavior was present or absent. And so there are many different sets of clues that, for example, that we're bringing to vocal behavior, vocalization. in, in that sense. So, so we start with living animals and you really need to understand how they work and what structures are linked to whatever function that are structures you might be able to look for in the fossil record. I'd love to get to a, a couple more questions
1: from a couple of uh, younger members of the audience. Um, I have a question from Eva, age eight, um, wondering, can we recreate dinosaurs using DNA from living creatures?
0: Okay, the DNA question. If we took DNA from living creatures and like modified that DNA, then we still wouldn't have an extinct dinosaur. We would have a chimera that we made to kind of look like an extinct dinosaur. So you might be able to take DNA or tissues from living animals and modify them to make them kind of look like a velociraptor. We can't do that presently, but If you could do that, you still haven't gotten the DNA of the extinct animal, and we have no evidence of fossil DNA from this time period. So DNA is actually a very unstable biomolecule, and it degrades very rapidly. So so that's my answer. I I hope that helps
1: out. Um, And and from Maria, she says she's a second grader and loves fossils. She's wondering, what's your favorite place to find fossils?
0: Oh, man, there's so many. Um, I guess, you know, I like to say Antarctica is an addiction. Um, Going to Antarctica is kind of the most extreme in terms of fieldwork because it's quite cold. It takes it's very difficult to get there. You can only go there as part of like a government run US run expedition or run by another country. But you know, you get addicted to that place because there's it's it's an almost soundless landscape of just ice and stone. And it's it's really like nowhere else. So that's one of my favorites, definitely. I'd love
1: to end with a sort of a final question. Um, And something I've I've been thinking about. Um, you know, I, I think I, it still is so exciting and kind of stuns me to think about the fact that, um, you know, we know now that we actually live in a world with dinosaurs today. Um, you go to the beach and you see a seagull and you, you think, okay, that, you know, there is an avian theropod. And so, um, you know, I think it's very exciting that we live in this world where, you know, not only can we learn about extinct dinosaurs, but we also do actually know now that we live with, uh, you know, live avian uh, dinosaurs today. And, but I guess at the same time, you know, we're seeing, you know, enormous biodiversity loss around the world um, from sort of combination of habitat loss, climate change. And um, we know that, you know, many species of our living dinosaurs are at risk today. And so I guess I'm curious your thoughts as a paleontologist, um, you know, studying dinosaurs, we know there's all this public appetite and interest in learning about extinct dinosaurs, but, you know, is there an opportunity here for us to also think about the dinosaurs we still have and what we need to do to
0: not lose them? Absolutely, absolutely. And and the point has been made that the real dinosaur extinction is now. You know, the, the way we measure a, a mass extinction event is... Um, extinction versus speciation relative to a background measure of that through time. And by that measure, we are in no doubt of being in a mass extinction now. So in terms of quantitatively looking at that, um, and a lot of those species affected are dinosaurs are our, our living dinosaurs today. Um, and so it is critical and it is able to be related to the um, for example, with every species lost, that is also information on the whole group, right? If you want to know what birds can do or what mammals can do, you want to look at that whole range of all of the things they can do. And so if you're systematically losing kind of birds with particular ecologies or birds with particular histories, you you can't get that back. We can't just make it in a lab or like Jurassic World unfortunately. Um, so it, it, is, it is actually directly relatable. And hopefully, maybe our appreciation for dinosaurs can extend and, and bring home, oh no, we can't lose all these living dinosaurs. I hope. I hope we could, that might increase our passion for conserving biodiversity.
1: That was paleontologist Julia Clark, professor of vertebrate paleontology at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. I spoke with Clark at a virtual event hosted by the Yale Peabody Museum earlier this year. This is where we live. Today's show was produced by me, Carmen Baskoff, with help from Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to all the staff at the Yale Peabody Museum who helped organize the virtual event. To hear more episodes of Where We Live, download our show as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff, This is Where We Live.